Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Welcome everyone. What a wonderful collection of people. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with uh, Professor Tyrell to talk about uh, economics for the common good. I'm Francis Coppola. I'm a writer and speaker on finance and banking and economics and Twitter queen, as some of, <laughs> some of you know. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all here today. Before we begin, can I just ask you, if you haven't already done it, can you turn your mobile phones to silent, please, just so we don't get distracting ringtones in the middle of all this? Um, but you don't have to turn them off, because if you want to tweet, we have a hashtag, which is hash RSA Tyrol. And it would be really nice, actually, if we had some tweets out on Twitter um, about some of the things we're going to say today, because I'm sure it's going to be really important, and there will be lots of comments from the Twitter community, um, which would be very nice to read. So let me introduce Professor Tyrol. He was the winner of the 2014 Sveriges Riksbank Prize in memory of Alfred Nobel, which is usually shortened to the Nobel Prize in Economics, and every time I say that, everybody goes, no, it isn't, but it, it's close enough. And he's been described as one of the most influential economists of our time. He's chairman of the Toulouse School of Economics and of the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse, and he's a visiting professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His books include The Theory of Corporate Finance and Financial Crises, Liquidity and the International Monetary System, which, of course, in recent years has become incredibly important. After being awarded the Nobel in 2014, Jean found himself regularly being called upon to comment on the issues of the day. And this transformation from academic economist to public intellectual prompted him to reflect on the role econ economists and their discipline can and should play in society. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that the economics profession has gone through a considerable amount of soul-searching in the last 10 years, yes. and that uh, you've very much been part of that. Some of the fruits of that thinking are to be found in his latest book, which he joins us to discuss today, Economics for the Common Good. So, Jean, with this book, you're seeking to disprove the old adage that Economics is a dismal science. <laughs> and convince us all instead that we should return to its roots. It should, of course, be the moral science, as Adam Smith always intended it to be. So, what broadly do you see as the principal ways that economics can interact more effectively with society in the interest of the common good? perhaps we could discuss some of our current grand challenges. When I was reading your book, I mean, there was one particular area that I felt you wrote very passionately about, which was climate change. And so I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit more about where we are with climate change. One of the things that struck me about it was that you talk a lot in the book about tragedies of the commons and the free riding problem. And it seems to me that climate change is the, is the tragedy of the commons par excellence short of establishing colonies somewhere else in the solar system, we can't escape. Well, thank you, Frances. And yeah, I mean, this uh, climate uh, change issue is very worrisome because if you look at what we have done in 2015 at COP21 in Paris, we haven't achieved that much in the end. I mean, there's a right diagnosis, so we need to, to do something to get under 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. Um, there is a right diagnosis that we should transfer money to less developed countries because they want to finance their growth. But at the same time, when you look at actual commitments, there are very few. Um, I think there are non-binding pledges and, and the Green Fund, which has actually meant to finance less developed countries, $100 billion per year, is actually a collective pledge. And we know that collective pledges don't work. Um, so the diagnostic is a bit disappointing in a sense, even if it's the right one, because that's the same one that we had in Rio in 1992. And we have lost 25 years. I mean, I'm, I'm of course, exaggerating the case and making a case uh, that we are not doing enough um, 
and we have to, to change things. Now, if you want to analyze why it happened, you just go back to the intention of the negotiators. And I, I don't want to blame the negotiators too much because, you know, probably I would not have done better myself. So. But, you know, still, um, they wanted to have 196 uh, signatories. And, you know, when you want to have Saudi Arabia on board or Venezuela on board, you won't have any binding commitment. You won't have any carbon price or the like. Um, it will just be intentions, uh, promises. And it was very difficult, to be honest, but uh, everyone went back home saying, you know, we have achieved a decisive step in, uh, in the fight against global warming. And I found that a little bit shocking because no head of state went back home and said, now we're going to spend money uh, to, <laughs> to fight climate change. And, and that's what we need, actually. So uh, the question is, you know, what's next, in a sense? And you are right, Francis. Uh, this is all about free riding. Uh, each country would like the other countries to make an effort to fight climate change, but not spend any money itself. And it's also selfishness with respect to future generations. Let's face it, we are selfish. You know, the future generations don't vote. And, you know, you just uh, privilege. The, you, you don't want to hurt the current generation that will have to pay some carbon price. And therefore, we, we wait. But we have been waiting for 25 years, and that's a bit too much, I think. And it's about time to do things differently. Would you suggest we did differently? I mean, this is quite a difficult problem, isn't it? The mm -hmm. idea that collectively we are all interested in changing this, but individually we're not. Exactly. No, I, I think, uh, I mean, you're completely right. It's a difficult issue, but we should simplify things uh, first. Simplify negotiations. Uh, the economic side is actually not that difficult because we have a lot of knowledge, exper experience with other, type of, other types of pollutants. I mean, I'm thinking about, for example, uh, acid, acid rains, for example, SO2, NOx. Um, we have done quite well with this uh, solution. Of course, they are more local, they are more country level as opposed to um, global warming, which is really a tragedy of the commons, of course, uh, par excellence. Um, so uh, we know how to deal with it. We need to have a carbon price. I mean, and then the economists will disagree on exactly what carbon price. I mean, you could have a carbon tax. You can have cap and trade. You know, we, we talk about, I talk about that in a book and I have my own opinion, but you know, honestly, it's very technical. And it's completely second order compared to our lack of, uh, of activity against climate change. So we need a carbon price. And furthermore, and you know, some of you may disagree with me on that, we need the carbon price including for the less developed countries. Because if you see where carbon emissions are going to be in the next few years, they will be in China, in India, in Brazil, in Indonesia, and all those countries. So if they don't face a carbon price, we are not going to stay under 2 degrees Celsius, or, or let alone 1.5. So the, there must be incentives in the less developed countries as well as uh, more developed countries. Um, what we have to do is to be generous, but not generous in the sense of saying you have a zero carbon price because you are poor. You need, we need to transfer money, and for that you need governments to actually make commitments, and I'm going to pay that much uh, to help uh, the poor countries uh, address to climate change. That strikes me as quite a difficult call at a time when governments, certainly in advanced countries, are facing a backlash from those who feel that they have lost out in 30 years of globalisation are calling for their own governments to pull back on even the limited support they are give, already giving to poorer countries and say, hang on, that should go to us, we should look after our own first. How do we address, with that, address that kind of thing? Surely we do need to do something about the... Um, you know, the, the sense of, oh, I guess, dashed expectations that we have in, in advanced countries at the moment. I mean, you are right. And, uh, but I would say the problem is inequality, because that's the issue, um, has to be addressed directly as opposed to indirectly. Because if you start putting inequality in every political issue or public policy issue, then that's going to completely pollute uh, 
uh, the issue. So, uh, you know, if we think, of course, if we, if we start uh, putting a price on carbon, there are poor people who are going to suffer from it, and there's no question about it. But if you don't, the, the planet is, is going to be destroyed. So, you know, uh, you have to deal with inequality directly and have the courage to deal with inequality directly and then get a price signal so that we do something about climate change. And it's easy to say. It's harder yes, to tell, especially now. And, you know, on the negotiation, it's actually, you know, I think the issue is not so much an economic issue. We know how to deal with those. Uh, it's more ge geopolitical issue. The enforcement, what happens if um, we sign an agreement and countries don't abide by the agreement? And the other one is compensation, of course. How do, how do we transfer money to, to less developed countries so that they face a carbon tax or a carbon price? And you know, now I'm a bit of a loss. You know, when I started writing this book, and I complained a lot about the COP21 agreement. <laughs> I was a bit upset. Not, again, it was very difficult, but mainly because they declared victory, and I, I found that very upsetting, this um, attitude. But mainly, um, you know, I think, as I said, it's very hard to have an agreement with 200 countries. Because you have some countries who, you know, in order to be signed the agreement, will ask, Table conditions and basically make sure that nothing will will happen because they are oil producer, for example, or coal producer. Um, so you have to deal with a smaller circle, and uh, I saw that very deeply when I felt I, I felt we had to have a different style of negotiation. But of course, that was before the American election, <laughs> and <laughs> so I thought you know one way to deal with that was to basically have a coalition of the biggest emitters, you know, the US, Europe, uh, Russia, China, India, and a couple of others, and, and basically devise a policy that will be effective and then put a lot of pressure on other countries to jump on board, to get on board, you know, using the WTO, using various institutions really to, to push the other countries to actually uh, get on board. But, but nowadays <laughs> it's getting more complicated and, and of course the American attitude is, is, and there are two ways of thinking about what's happening uh, with Donald Trump. One is it's not that bad anyway because those are non-binding pledges anyway, so they might not have been implemented so it doesn't change things very much. But I think it's, it's, it's worse than that because um, the issue is that it supplies a very good excuse for the others to do nothing. Now we see, we see things changing, of course, especially in China, the attitude toward global warming changes, but you know, even that is kind of predictable because China is a big country, one-fifth of the population, so it's still free riding, but no, it's smaller than other types of free riding. Um, China, China, of course, uh, also has local interest in reducing pollution because, of course, when you use coal plants, you emit not only CO2, but you emit SO2 and NOx, which are local pollutants, and that, on that there is no free riding. One of the themes that seems to run through this dis particular discussion, you've mentioned it already, is this sense of, a sense of mortgaging the future in order to, to cope with, with current needs. Um, and the inequality thing that you raised is very much a current need as well as a future one. It's, it's about people who now who see themselves as losing out and are demanding that something is done for them and are apparently quite prepared to throw future generations under the bus to achieve it. I'm, I'm just wondering how we square this difficulty. I mean, you say we are not generous to future, future generations, and I'm, I think many of us would agree with that. I mean, you've mentioned, for example, the unfunded pensions problem which is going to come in the, the demographic, demographic shift, which is going to come and back, back and bite us. I wonder how we square the, the, the need to, um, as you say, um, try and, political need to try and ensure that people don't lose out in the current, in the present, versus the, the need to ensure that we don't completely foul things up for future generations. Well, I mean... It's actually a difficult issue, of course, because uh, future generations are not represented politically, um, at least most of them. So um, we economists, if we want to work toward the common good, I mean, I think deeply that, uh, 
I feel that uh, economics should be a moral and philosophical science. And, and you know, one easy thing to do is to think for the long term, you know, not, not be short-termist. Uh, I'm not blaming, blaming politicians, by the way, I don't want. I think it's kind of irresponsible. To, I mean, it's not, it's not unproductive, actually, to, to blame politicians all the time because they react to their own incentives, which is the next election. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a short-term thing, and you know, let's face it, if we were politicians, we will do more or less the same, perhaps a little bit more courageous, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but you know, we, will still be, we will still be doing the same because we will have our own incentives, right? And, and that we have to understand instead of, of wishing that we had different politicians. Sure, we, we hope we will have better politicians sometimes, but in the, in the end, you know, the incentive will always be short-term in some way. So we need, as, as public intellectual, we need to push the long-run agenda. And it's true also, you are very interested in, in banking and finance. And we have seen the, you know, the, the damages which were made, which was made by short-term incentives in finance, for example. And the same thing in politics. You mentioned climate change. You mentioned unfunded pensions. You can talk about education. You can talk about this and that. There is, of course, an underinvestment in the long run in the political spectrum. So what we have got to do is really to convince the population that you know, that's, that's a suicide in a sense, that's suicidal. And, and there's going to be a backlash anyway. And you already see it with populist movement all over the world. It's not only the UK and the US, but it's everywhere in the world. And you know, if, you, if you don't take a long-term perspective, uh, you, need, you, are, you are going to, uh, to commit political and economic suicide. Um, now, you have to deal with inequality too, and I'm not an, I have to, have to warn you, I'm not at all an expert in inequality. Of course, I'm very concerned by it, but I'm not an expert in, on the matter of inequality. But, you know, this is something which is extremely damaging, the fact that we, you know, in some, especially in some countries, we haven't taken care of the losers of uh, globalization. We always mention globalization, but much of it is also technological progress. And, and that's going to get worse. I mean, let's face it, it's going to get worse with AI and robots, um, things, you know, the polarization of, uh, of the income distribution is going to get worse. And, you know, lots of people are going to lose their job, including skilled ones. And, you know, we, we have to think through that. And, you know, we can discuss that later on. But, you know, if we don't deal with inequality at some point, um, it's going to be uh, not only very, very bad for the people who suffer from that, but it's going to be bad for everyone, I think, because the political pressure is going to be such that we are going to adopt extremely bad policies. And we see already some of that. That's interesting. There's, I wonder to what extent the unwillingness to, to, to look for the long term, as you say, it's partly politicians' incentives that their, their horizon, the time horizon is the next election. Um, there are very few who have a longer-term longer view, um, and the ones who do have a longer-term view don't always get elected. Um, but I wonder also if there is a, a little bit of a casual assumption that because the general trend of economies over a very long time now has been generally that technological improvement tends to make people better off over time, that therefore future generations will be better off than us just because of technology. And that will offset all the other things like the changing nature of work, for example, and you know, the question about to what extent robots and AI will replace jobs that we currently have and to what extent new types of jobs which will be created, which is how industri industrial revolutions have happened in the past and what happens to the people who lose out in that and what the consequences for, for society are, which is, I think, one of the issues that you struggle with a little bit in your book. So I was just wondering, do you think that the march of technology is something, that, are we right to regard it as long-term beneficial, or are there measures that we need to take to make sure that it is? Well, that's the same issue as with globalization. There are winners and losers. Globally, it makes us richer. Yeah on the whole, and, and I have no doubt, by the way, that uh, AI and, and, and biotechnology, genetics, and so on, are going to make us richer, healthier, and so on and so forth. So technological progress actually is still there, and actually is going to, to get faster and faster. 
And the question is the distributive consequences of that, which, which exists, by the way. I mean, if you look at the US, but I would say that for the other countries as well, you know, all the studies show that globally it has been good for the US, for example, globalization. It has benefited, of course, the Chinese and the Indians and so on, but it also has benefited the US. But not everyone, of course, because if you were in the Rust Belt, uh, you lost your job, and you could not find a similar job, at least uh, nearby. So, you know, they were big losers, of course, and, and that's, that's the issue. And that's going to go on because there will be more and more job destruction. It's not new. I mean, you have had the Luddites uh, right here in, in England, uh, which actually, were, interestingly, were skilled workers. So uh, the destruction of jobs there were skilled workers, and, and we see now skilled workers actually uh, were going to lose their job. Many professions currently are highly skilled are going to lose their job. It's not only the unskilled who lose their job. But the new thing, I guess, is that it's going to get faster and faster. I mean, economists have never been worried about the fact that there will be no job. You know, there are jobs which are distracted, and there are always other jobs which are created. That's not the issue. But the issue is what kind of jobs will be created? Will be the there might be low-wage job, and that's where the point comes, because you, know, if you are going to, to face a lot of competition unless you, are, you have skills which are complementary to the new technologies, in which case you benefit you know, immensely from the technological progress. If you have skills which, which are substitute for the technological progress, then you, you lose your, your job and you, you lose a lot. So the question, and that's a difficult question, is what do you do with those people? Mm. Do you think we should be investing far more in education, in training, in skills, yes. um, not only for young people, but also for people who are going to lose their jobs as part of the technological yeah, Of course, and, uh, as an academic, I'm a little bit biased. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, um, no, but that's true. I mean, uh, if I take my own country, for example, I think we we invest way too little in, the, in each step. So, you know, the trilogy, uh, education, you know, from primary school, from kindergarten through university, and then apprenticeship, and then uh, vocational training on the job training, unemployment retraining, and so on. It's not always, by the way, the number of euros we spend. I mean, we spend 31 billion euros, for example, on retraining workers, either on the job or when they are unemployed, but it's, it's, a, it's a disaster because we don't certify, it's very low quality, and we don't help those workers actually find another job in the future. But the education stuff is exactly the same. So you, again, I'm going to talk about my own country because of course I know it be better, but you know, the top 20% get a magnificent, a very good education, and you know, we have lots of talents, highly well-trained people, and then the bottom 80% basically get a very bad education, and you see that in all the rankings. And it's, it's supposed to be a very egalitarian system, but in practice it's, it's, it's very bad in terms of inequality. It's, it's completely an insider trading uh, scandal. And, and then uh, on top of that, you don't, we don't prepare for the future. So it's a long-term issue. Again, we are back short-term versus long-term, but if we want to protect people, against what's going to happen is that you must give them a very good education and reskill them over time. So the thing is that you don't, you're not going to get a job for life anymore. You know, your job is going to change repeatedly over your career, uh, whatever, whether you're skilled or non-skilled. And then you have to adjust to the new job. And if you don't have this education and, and training uh, programs working well, then we are not going to protect the workers. And you know, my own view, and this is actually something that applies way beyond countries like Southern Europe, is that you have to protect the workers and not protect the jobs. Um, in Southern Europe, typically, you will protect the jobs with all the consequences, that, the bad consequences, that, uh, indirect effects that we could discuss later on. But um, in the end, you have to protect the worker. That's the important thing. And you protect them through generous unemployment insurance, but also through the ability to get a job and get a new job when they are laid off. And if we don't do that, they need their dignity too, right? It's not only money, they also want a dignity. And you know, if you don't do that, that's very unfair to them.
In your book, you talk quite a bit about labour markets, actually, when, and um, labour markets are national, well, labour market policies are national, but maybe not labour markets themselves. Um, and so you talk quite a bit about the French labour markets and southern Europe generally. Um, and you're quite critical of, of the, the kind of structural rigidity that protects people in permanent jobs and you know, throws the rest to the wolves. Um, I wonder, um, in the UK here, we have a, a perhaps a more flexible labour market, but our issues are more to do with growing insecurity, precarity, reliance on short-term contracts, self-employment, um, the gig economy. Do you see, uh, um, one of the things you say is that in a way that labour labour market policies, um, employee, employee protections and so forth, are designed for a bygone age, an age when people are in permanent jobs in factories, and that we haven't yet caught up with, in a way, the, the way work is changing, not just because of technology, but also because of changing um, practices, really. Um, I wonder if you had any thoughts about you know, sort of what we should be looking to do to um, maybe, certainly in your own country, encourage more flexibility, but also generally to deal with the problem of insecurity and precarity, which is a growing problem in the workforce and looks set to continue. Yes, I think the, the kind of issues we have in France uh, compared to the UK, those are not the same issues. And uh, maybe I, sh I should start with France, uh, because what happens in France is that you have this very dual labor market in which you have people with a permanent job, which, by the way, they are not very happy with their job very often. And your anxiety is very high in French firms, and I could discuss why. And then you have those who are left out of the labor market, the young people who go from short-term job to unemployment to short-term jobs to unemployment. And then the older people, very few people age over 55 work, actually. I think it's 46 or 48 percent. Uh, we don't find a job anymore if they are laid off. So we have this very dual labor market with about 90% of the new job creations being short-term jobs sometimes a month. Um, and this is increasing, and of course, with the new economy, it's going to get worse. It won't be 90%, it will be 95 and 97% because uh, employers are very worried about giving long-term jobs, and they have to keep the employees in principle. Um, you know, knowing that the job might disappear in three years or five years, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of impossible. Um, there's, there are lots of costs to the French system, um, not only unemployment, you know, the fact that they, 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 they go uh, from unemployment spells to short-term contract and so on, and also discouragement because, you know, when we say we have 10% unemployment, actually we have much more because lots of people, including the young, among the youngs, are discouraged Lots go into early retirement because they don't find a job and so on and so forth. But there is much more than that. There is also the, the general mood. Because what happens? If you cannot fire a worker, you try to push the worker. And it's on both sides, actually, because also the worker, um, when you have a job but you are no longer satisfied with your job, you stick to the job because there is no other job, which is similar long-term job. So you have discontent, you have workers who are no longer pleased with their job. You know, they don't like their boss, or they, they want a new challenge. They stick to the job because they have no other job. So there's too little mobility, which is bad for the firms and bad for the workers. And it's also very expensive for the state. So what happens is, on the one hand, you have to pay you know, a lot for unemployment benefits. But also, there are lots of abuses. So we have this uh, system in France. I should not tell you about this because you don't want to learn about it. But you have this system which, you know, if you want to take some time off, um, you ask your employer to fire you because if you quit, you are not entitled to unemployment benefits. The employer doesn't pay anything. You know, as long as you promise not to sue the employer, this is fine. So the employer fires you. There are 360,000 such uh, lay layoffs every year. And we're paying the collectivity. Um, and it's called rupture conventionnelle, for those of you who know France. But um, it's very expensive for society, and it's just the wrong way to do it. Because firms are not made accountable for, for, their, for their layoffs. I mean, they, they pay severance pay to the workers, but they don't pay anything 
to the social security fund to, for the unemployment they create. Actually, it's the reverse. We have, we have it completely upside down. So what happens is that if you lay off a worker, you don't pay anything in terms of unemployment benefits. And those who pay actually are the firms who keep the work, which keep the worker, because unemployment benefits are financed from social security contribution. So it's, it's a reverse of the dismissal pay principle. It's, you know, take pollution. We are man mentioning uh, climate change. Take pollution. Imagine that those who actually use uh, solar energy will pay for the pollution, and those who use coal actually will not pay anything. And that will be the same thing. And you know, there is a very simple way of doing it. Uh, I hope the French government will, uh, will uh, implement this way. I think the bosses union will be very reluctant to it. But you know, some kind of scheme in which those who pay don't only pay, I'm sorry, those who dismiss a worker don't only pay for severance pay, but also pay to the unemployment benefit fund for the costs they impose on society. Well, there's a novel thought. On that note, I wonder if um, those in the audience might like to join the discussion at this point. So I um, would like to invite some questions. But I think we have some roving mics. Am I right? Yeah. So there's a gentleman down here in the front. Could you just mention what the level of unemployment benefit is? Because I think in France it's uh, vastly different from what it is in the UK. I think it would illustrate your point better. Benefits are larger than abroad, I guess, and uh, you can, you know, usually 70, 80%, sometimes 90%. And they are very generous, for, for including for executives. So you get, you know, you, if you, even if you have an, a wage of 6,000 euros per month, you get very sizable unemployment benefits. So they are, they are much larger. So, you know, the cost to society when you lay off uh, the, the workers um, is actually pretty big. There's a gentleman over there. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was just wondering if you could articulate for me how the economics for a common good that you've been describing is different from the sort of standard economics that we feel subjected to at the moment, which, if I use the sort of Michael Sandel uh, phrase, it's like we've gone from having a market economy to a market society where all problems can be solved through arm's length transactions uh, in marketplaces. Last night I was at the, uh, the award ceremony for Robin Murray, who is a, an economist here in the UK who has died, but his perspective was bring relationships, bring cooperation, bring mutuality into the practice of economics and how we think about these problems. And that's how we will be different from, if you like, the standard way of doing economics today. What would you say is the economics for a common good which is different from what's prevalent in economics today? So also a very interesting question. The, the view that some people have about you know, economics is actually the wrong view because economics has changed a lot in the last 30 or 40 years. For one thing, we don't think that markets are perfect, <laughs> including financial markets. Have, you know, I often read in the newspaper that economists believe that financial markets are perfect. I mean, you know, most of our research is actually trying to understand market imperfection and try to know, to understand how we can regulate industries. And there are many market failures. And much of the work of economists is actually about market failures. I mean, I'm not saying that all economists agree with that, but, you know, by and large, the profession has worked a huge amount on regulation. And actually, the, the price I received three years ago was about regulation. And that's what I've been doing all my life. Uh, there's, let me just say a little bit about this view. I mean, the old view of economics, which was like a competitive economy, basically everything was efficient. You know, this paradigm, everything was efficient, and the only thing you had left to do was income redistribution. That was, in a sense, that was the only market failure, that you don't get the right distribution of income, whatever you, you think is right. Uh, now, we, are, we have a much richer thing, and, you know, if we think about Climate change, for example, I don't know if I will call climate change, you know, a moral issue. Yes, it's more into the, to the extent that we, we neglect the, the welfare of future generations in that sense, yes. But part of it is just a market failure. There's pollution and we're trying to solve this market failure issue. 
if you think about information primes, and you know, actually Michael Sandel talks a lot about give example, which have to do with imperfect information and the like. And we know that markets are not perfect. So for example, one of the examples he will give is you know, economists will think that you should buy your diploma. And you know, one of the basic things in economics is that information is very important. So if you buy your diploma or your entrance into a prestige university, elite university, that means that your diploma will be a signal of wealth and not a signal of talent. And of course, it will send the wrong signal, et cetera, et cetera. Those are not moral issues per se. They are just market failure, and you have to understand the economics of information, the, econ the you know, game theory and the like, and, and the economics of regulation. Now, that doesn't mean there are no more issues, because if you think about how our societies are built, you know, the standard view of society was, you have Adam Smith, I'm talking about the invisible end. There is a, another Adam Smith who, who is wonderful, is you know, the seer of moral sentiment. If you have read that, I, you know, it's, it's a wonderful book as well. But uh, let's take the invisible end. You, know, you let the market do it, it's going to be efficient, unless you have market failures. Actually, by the way, Adam Smith was talking a lot about you know, everyone having an education at the time, right? He was not proposing a market solution. He was really trying to push for, for some regulation. And you know, so that was this. There are market failures. And then you get the government to intervene. And Pigou, for example, and you know, argued that. You get the government to intervene and correct those market failures. And then the invisible end still works because you, you have the right incentive at that point of time. The problem, the basic problem is our government failures as well. So the market fails very often, but the government also fails very often. And then what do you do? And that's where social responsibility comes in. And that's where the moral issues come in. And that's something I've, I've been working on, I discuss in the book, uh, which are very important. So we as citizens, so as, as consumers, as workers, as investors, we also have some moral duty. And that comes mainly from the fact that governments fail. They don't do their job. I mean, as we see, for example, with climate change. Yes. The whole forest of hands. There's a lady at the back there. Uh, yes, you. Um, you mentioned uh, inequalities. You mentioned, uh, we haven't mentioned taxation. But I'm interested to know what your ideas are on how you counter people who say if you tax the rich more, um, they'll leave or um, it damages business. That's one one. And the other one is the in inequality in, in um, pay. Um, the top captains of industry and, and so on are earning now so much more um, in comparison to their average worker than they were, say, 30 years ago, whatever it is. And, and why is that? And what would you do about it? It kind of plays into a, a bit in your book, to a book when you talk about incentives, and you talk a little bit about social responsibility in business and the incentives of top managers. And so, so I wonder if we could expand on that a bit. It's a very good question. Thank you. So the f the, your first question was about uh, basically, if you tax the rich, they might quit. I mean, for, for one thing, if you tax the rich, they may not completely quit because if you get your money from rents that you got from your country or you got rich because of real estate, you know, and you own real estate, that's not going to leave the country. The more worrisome thing, and we don't have good data on that, is what about entrepreneurs? And that's one of the things that worries me quite a lot, um, which is... Um, you know, nowadays, if you, talk, if you take the top uh, five uh, market caps, the biggest firm in the world, there are two-sided platforms, Google, Amazon, uh, Apple, and so on. If you look at the biotech firm, which are going to create the new wealth as well, you know, with medicine, new medicines, it's going to be also a couple of people which start those firms. And those people are highly mobile. So we see that, uh, unfortunately, there's not much evidence on that. So. We see that, for example, in France, where you know, there's actually lots of startups, there's a lot of startup activity, but when they do very well, they move to the US. Um, and that's, that's, that's a pain. And by the way, we see the same thing in academia. So the migration in academia is actually very small, but you see those who leave for the US, for example, are those who publish the most, are the most well-known, you know, by and large. And 
you know, being in Toulouse, we try very hard actually to do some reverse brain drain and keep the talents and bring foreign talents actually to, to France. And you know, that's a difficulty. It's like climate change. There is no global uh, decision power. You know, everyone is free riding. There is tax competition. There is that. Now, I can say, and many people say that, what we need is some kind of uh, agreement worldwide on, on taxes and, and so on, so that we don't we compete on the quality of life, the quality of infrastructure, but we don't compete on taxes. It's easier said than, than said than done, of course, and it's a little bit of a cheap answer I'm giving you here, you know, because of course you know people want to have different models. For example, you know, in France we spend 50, 57 percent of GDP on you know, through the public and public expenditures, which is the highest in the world. Now, does it bother me? Yes and no. Uh, it bothers, it doesn't bother me if I get good public services from that. You know, spending, I pay a lot in taxes, but that's perfectly fine if, you know, education, health services, and so on are at the right level. I mean, but that's a choice of society. You could think of another society where you have only 30 or 35 percent, and you get lower public services. That's not the society I want to live in, but, but it's a choice of society, and I have nothing to say about that. But where I have something to say is when I see exactly what I was mentioning on education, when I see that the French are not educating uh, their pupils well enough, or when universities are doing the wrong thing, and you know, are not training the students well, are not doing good enough research, and we are spending so much money, I'm, I'm really upset. So, you know, there has to be efficiency anyway. Um, the second part, sorry, I'm speaking too much. <laughs> the second part was about... The incentive, well, it was about the, the pay of top, oh, the captains pay. of industry. And, yeah, indeed. The, the pay, I mean, again, there are two, two answers to your question. You know, what does an economist have to say about IP? I can give you my feeling as a citizen. I think the pay of some people are way too high. But first, we don't have to, to decide whether a soccer player or TV anchor or banker is more valuable in a sense. You know, there is an income tax which is supposed to redistribute. And, you know, but then the question is whether the, forget about the level, the issue of the structure. So, for example, if people get rich because they are short-term oriented, you know, they get bonuses, for example. That's bad. That's bad for the corporation, for the banks. That's bad for society. If they get rich because they are rewarded for luck, that's bad. Okay? If they get rich because they get a big bonus or dividend just before their bank fails, that's bad, and so on and so forth. And then we could go into the reason for why the case. So, you know, for example, the the compensation committees may be captured, or there may be a culture of bonuses, or maybe there's an expectation of bailouts of the banks by the government. I mean, we could go through all those causes. But, you know, I would say there are two points you can make uh, in response to your question. There's a question of you want to reward performance, not bad behavior or luck. You want to reward the long-term perspective, not the short-term perspective. And that's pretty uncontroversial. And then the question about how much inequality you want in your society, in a sense, is more of a philosophical and moral question, but it has to be addressed through, um, through income taxation. A last point on this is there is this debate about whether regulators should look into the performance pay of bankers. And my own view is that they should. I'm not always in favor of government intervention in everything. But there, there's public money at stake, right? Which is that, for example, if you have bankers which are paid too much, and especially based on bonuses, for example, then there will be a lot of public money at stake in form of bailouts. There will be jobs which will be lost and so on. And, and therefore, there is a reason for the government to intervene in a reasonable way, but there is a good case to be made for regulating compensation without being too, in, too intrusive. Okay, lovely. Let's have another question. Um, there's a guy over here in an orange t-shirt. Thank you. Um, sorry, just coming back to one of the things you said earlier on about uh, 
you know, AI and robotics and automation and how they'll have the effect of uh, perhaps making redundant certain jobs, but new jobs will be created. It's a one thing that sort of slightly perplexes me, and that is why will those new jobs not be capable of being done by, by robots or, or, or what have you? And I suppose it leads to just a concern about um, you know, the vast majority of the population potentially not having jobs in the future and what sort of economy would be necessary to support them. There's talk about universal basic income and what have you, but then the question is how is that paid for? Where do the taxes come from? Um, I'd just be very interested to hear your view on that and to a certain extent whether we almost need to introduce inefficiency into the economy to uh, a kind of a bartering society or something along those lines to allow people to have something useful to do and you know, produce goods that they can sell onto others. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. So the jobs are going to change very fast. And that, I think that the only new thing relative to the past is that it's going to change at a speed which is very high. So some jobs will be replaced. I mean, they will still need to, uh, you know, you still need to have a co human contact somehow. So let me give you two examples. Something I found very surprising is that you still have people uh, uh, taking your order in restaurants. You could just put a computer on the table, you order, that would be very fast, that would be cheap, and still people like to have a contact, human contact. But let me take a more serious example. Take a general practitioner, a doctor, highly skilled person. I'm not talking about a university professor in medicine. I'm talking to people who, who take care of you on an everyday basis. Now in a few years, AI, genetics and the like are going to be in a sense more effective than GPs because they, they can build on much larger data set. They have, they, they have a much easier time establishing a diagnosis and they could basically do many things that a GP does now and that will be much cheaper. And the question you know, for those who, who, are t who are studying for 10 years to become a GP uh, is, you know, what are they going to do? And the answer is, I don't know. You know in the book, I, I stress the fact that economists are terrible at predicting, so I, probably I should not predict too much. But you know, the, the, um, it's still the case that, first, you need someone with common sense and some knowledge to check that the you know, the algorithm hasn't been hacked, <laughs> which will be pretty bad, especially in the medical domain. Um, and also, I think people will still need to have some of this kind of human relationship. Um, but who knows? In a sense, the market will decide. But that's, that creates an issue because there are always new needs for, as I said, you know, non-economists have been predicted for 200 years and that jobs are going to disappear. Actually, Keynes himself you know, predicted that by 1965 there will be very few jobs or no jobs. And you know, those predictions are always wrong. I think the question is whether there will be jobs which will be paid enough um, that people will want to take. And, and we are back to the low wages that you have here in the UK. And that might get even worse. So that, that connects your question about universal income. And again, I have no expertise in, in fiscal matters, but I don't think many people actually know the answer to that. Um, we all have universal income. Most countries have some universal income in some way. You, you already have some, some minimum uh, living, living income somehow uh, in most countries. The question is at, at what level and is it consistent with keeping a job in a sense? You also want people to, to keep a job. Uh, you don't, you don't want to be Saudi Arabia where you basically distribute the money or you give a fake job uh, to the population. You, people want to be useful to society. So, and you, know, you have to arrange that and it's difficult and you have to calibrate the level of the university. Can you afford it? Is it going to destroy the incentive to, to stay employed and you, are you going to keep the social fabric that way? And the answer is we don't know, especially in countries where you cannot easily experiment because if you have a universal income, you have to get rid of many transfers in kind. You have to redesign your tax system. But in a country like France, it's very difficult because it's illegal to do that. Everybody has to be subject to the same 
income tax. So if you run an experiment in Toulouse, um, then you have to keep the same income tax, but it doesn't make any sense because you're you are completely changing the structure of the income tax by doing that. So it's very hard to calibrate and, and, and see how, it, how it's going to work. Okay, uh, there's a guy at the back there. Hi, um, I want to go back to the carbon tax um, argument, which I agree with in terms of the developing countries. Um, but I, want, I was, was going to say, um, how do we accommodate, or should we accommodate, the argument that developing countries often say, which is that the US polluted its way to, to where it is today, and they deserve a chance to catch up in a way that is not as cost um, that doesn't cost as much as if they had to pay a carbon tax. Well, I understand the concern, of course, and India has made this argument many times, for example. And it's true, it's a bit unfair because the developed countries have financed their development by emitting carbon, and the poor countries now want to finance their development and don't want to spend too much money and they want to use their coal and, and all those things. But I think it's a self-defeating argu argument because if they insist on having, uh, that's what I said earlier, if they insist on not having a carbon price themselves, then we'll never succeed in having 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, warming. It's going to be much higher because more, most of the emissions from now on will come from poor regions. And, you know, and India and so on are going to, the, to be the main victims in the end of their own policy. So the difficulty is, of course, and this is a, I don't have a good answer to that, is how to make transfers to those countries. And there are two sides to this difficulty. The first is free riding, how do you allocate between the US and Europe and Japan and so on? And who is going to get it to? Because after all now China is richer than, than India, which is richer than blah, blah, blah. So, you know, this is entire. So we, we need to actually have some kind of formula. And, you know, there are people who work on that. It's very imperfect. Some formula which says, depending on your exposure, your uh, income, blah, blah, blah then you'll have to pay or receive that much. Because you cannot have a negotiation with 196 countries, each saying, I want, I want more, or I want to pay less. You just cannot do that. So you need some rough formula, which, which is going to be applied to everyone. But then there's a question of enforcement. And you know, we're going to go back. Let me, let's assume that uh, the American president, whoever he is, or she is, goes to Texas and says, we are going to give that much money to Africa or to India. That's not going to be very, very popular. And, and, you know, this, I don't have a good answer, but if you go back to the other pollutants, we have faced somewhat of the same issue, um, which is, if you think about one of the most accomplished policies, which is a bipartisan agreement in the U.S. in 1990, which basically got rid of acid rain uh, through a cap-and-trade mechanism, so basically emission permits. Um, it took a long time to negotiate. Actually, the Midwest, Midwest countries didn't want this agreement because, of course, they, are, they were the ones who were polluting and emitting the SO2 and the NOx. So what happens is that the, um, the California and the eastern these coast uh, states actually agreed to give free permits to the Midwestern state, and it was just a bribe so that they would sign the agreement. In the end, it worked, but it was a big transfer in, of money from the two coasts to, um, you know, to, the, to the Midwestern state. And lots of things are like that. And I'm going to say something which is not very nice, in a sense is that it succeeded because it was opaque. You know, I was in the U.S. at the time, and, you know, I didn't read in the Boston Globe, for example. I, 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 I lived in, in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Mass. 
And you know, I didn't read the Boston Globe every day. We're spending so much money <laughs> and giving it to other states. And the, the electorate didn't know about it, by and large. Uh, it's, it's a bit sad as a story, actually, because probably it would have worked against the policy because you know, the, the states in the, on, the, on the coast would have been a bit upset. But here we face a problem with a vengeance because it's an international thing. And as long as you don't have enough empathy for the others, uh, giving money, huge amounts of money to other countries, and you don't experience enough empathy, it's going to be very hard to achieve, right? We have time for one more very brief question. So there's a guy here in front of you here who has been waiting for ages. Thank you. Yes, uh, the general title, Economics for the Common Good, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and you touched on a possible answer. You explained the problem with the short-term problems with politicians versus the long-term needs of society. Uh, and you throughout the com comment, the answer is to convince the population to take a long-term perspective. Now, it seems to me the only way you do that is, to is, is somehow to teach the common man what the problems really are, and that it's in society's interest, not ours, yours, somebody else's. And if, if that was done in every country, we may then get some proper collaboration. Um, but unless we do that, we're going to have society run in the way it is now by the elites, by the powerful, using opaque methods generally. I mean, if, when, when, for example, the man in the street, including me, the scientist who thought the system worked properly, found out what was going on in terms of inequality in the bankers, I was horrified, and so was the man in the street, and so were, and so were some of the politicians. I mean, politicians don't even know where the money comes from. So we're in a mess, an ignorant mess. So what do we do to convince the population, as you suggested, not just for long-term issues, but the inequality issues? Well, it's a very brief answer. A very brief answer. <laughs> and the first thing is that, of course, experts have to get their act together. And, you know, I think... People have been very harsh with economists and other social scientists, uh, but at the same time, we also have to be more credible somehow toward the population. But we, on the other side, we need to educate the population about expertise. You know, the populist movement, including in France, want to talk to the people. They don't want to talk to experts. And the experts are completely dismissed, and for good reasons, because they will say the populist policies usually are bad. So. Uh, and you know, this Marine Le Pen in France always said that I talk to the people, I don't talk to the experts. And so that's a way of not answering the question whenever there's a difficult question. But now, how do we get the people who don't read the main newspaper, don't you know, read the main medias, the serious ones, and believe what they want to believe? And I explain in the book why we all believe what we want to believe. And you know, one of the things we could do but it's a long-term, again, it's a long-term investment, is to educate the pupils to the scientific method so that there will be more respect for science. It's not only in economics you could do that, in biology and so on. Just what people have been doing for centuries, just like think about how do you test something, a control group, a treatment group. It's done in medicine. It has been done in medicine by Pasteur a long time ago. It's done in economics. Just teach simple things like that in high school. And th those are actually very simple to teach. And then say there is a scientific method. There are assumptions which have to be completely transparent. There is logical reasoning. There is testing. And there are various ways of testing. And just have res some respect for experts. Now, the, respect, the expert are also need to deserve that respect, <laughs> and I talk about the, that in the book. But it also has to be the case that the population has to respect the expert and has to know who are the experts. And that's one of the difficulties in, in climate change, but it's the same thing with economics. You know, you always find people who deny climate change, which is fine, by the way, in science, because science is about doubt, it's about controversies. But when it comes to public debate, it's not fine because there's a consensus, which I use when I talk about climate change, because I'm incompetent in climate change. And we need, we need actually to know who the experts are. What is the consensus at DT? No, the consensus may change over time. We are learning. But at least it must be the case that the population 
ask some feel about, with an expert, what is the consensus in the profession, and you know, that we need to educate people about that, but you know, of course I realize it's a long-term program. So we can sum up that, uh, that people need to have respect for each other. Sadly, that's all we've got time for now. Thank you very much for coming today and for your excellent questions. If you didn't get a chance to ask a question, I know that Jean's going to hang around just for, just for a few minutes and sign some books outside. And I do recommend that you read this book. I have read it and it is brilliant. Um, Economics for the Common Good. So it's been a great conversation today. I'd like you to join me in thanking our excellent speaker, uh, Jean Tirol. In the, in the tradition. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.